Welcome to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Each and every podcast, hosts Mike Niemer and Greg Frank will bring you energy experts to help you better understand the renewable and sustainability space. Education is important to us because it's important to you, the listener. Now here's Mike Niemer and Greg Frank. And we welcome you into episode 134 of the Green Insider podcast powered by EU Renewable. My name is Greg Frank alongside the president and CEO of EU Renewable and my co-host, Mike Niemer got another guest coming at you, but Mike, first off, how are we doing? Another podcast? We're starting to get our feet wet here, aren't we? Glad to be here again today. Getting ready to talk to Marty Weens with America Rare Earth. Uh, you know, Greg, since you joined us, we're five or six episodes in, and uh, we're just motoring right along and knocking these out and bringing very interesting guests to our listeners. And as always, we're hoping we're educating the public to what's going on out there in the renewable, sustainable, and ESG space. And I think uh, today they're going to hear something from Marty they don't normally hear. So I'm excited for that. And you kind of already hinted at it, but without further ado, let's bring in our guest now. He is Marty Weems, the president of America Rare Earths North America. Marty, it's good to have you aboard. Thanks a lot for your time. How are you doing? Yeah, doing great. Thanks for having me, Greg. Mike, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak to you here today. So as per usual, when we bring on guests, we like to try and uh, get a little feel for what got them into the space and what kind of background they have as far as credentials and what got you to where you are now. So what's your story there? Yeah. So, uh, you know, my background is uh, technology and services related to healthcare, machine learning, artificial intelligence have uh, two successful exits in my career, two different companies, one a private equity exit, one a strategic exit, and then came into this industry a couple of years ago, you know, essentially, this is an industry, uh, rare earths as a complete supply chain that doesn't fully exist in the United States. So it, it needs someone willing to kind of create something that doesn't really exist to go figure out how to bring this industry zero to one in the Western Hemisphere. And that's a challenge I've uh, chosen to take on here with American Rare Earths. And what's that been like just in terms of, as you said, trying to uh, start something from scratch almost? Yeah, so... It's been really exciting. It's been a, a strong learning curve, and and but there's a lot of enthusiasm enthusiasm around this space. Uh, it's really unique in that we have both government push and market pull, and and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that today. But it, it's a really unique position to sit in, where both uh, you, you've got a lot of government interest and a lot of market pull on and demand, uh, both now and moving into the future. And tell us a little bit more about just kind of where you see, you mentioned moving into the future, like what kind of upside do you see for what you're doing now? And obviously when you start something from scratch, you're, you're trying to build it out and, and, and have that long-term vision. So as far as what you do with uh, American Rare Earths, like what kind of upside and potential do you really see for the company? Yeah. So, to understand upside in this space, we're, you know, we're a materials play, you know, we're, we're in uh, getting, you know, rock material out of the ground, extracting metal from that. And ultimately that's going to go through midstream downstream processing to ultimately make metal and, and on into manufacturing and shiny project product. So really you're talking about what's the, what's the end user product that, consumers or industry will see and then is is that growing and if those industries are growing it pulls us along with it right so uh and 
and specifically for those that, that are the big consumers now and going forward, think about, um, you know, things that re- require electricity to move, electricity into motion or motion into electricity. That's the real core consumers here. And what that comes down to is think, uh, think electric vehicles, not the batteries, but what, what do the batteries feed? They feed electric traction motors. Those motors need rare earth permanent magnets. And that's how you turn that electricity into motion and make those wheels go round. The reverse of that, turning ele- motion into electricity, think offshore wind turbines. So as the wind turbine turns, huge rare earth permanent magnets in that turbine that help convert that motion into electricity. So wind, wind turbine manufacturing and placements uh, up and to the right, massive growth, especially in Asia and offshore Europe. Then um, electric vehicles, Europe, Asia, massive markets growing like crazy. Um, regardless of the vehicle uh, manufacturer, where they're using you know, battery, fuel cells, hydrogen, whatever the, the power source might be, they're all taking that electricity and feeding it through electric traction motors to make the wheels go round. Um, so, you know, the, the, the power source doesn't matter if it's really about electricity moving the wheels. Uh, and then think about refrigeration, air conditioning. Those motors also require uh, rare earth permanent magnets for that high performance environment. So all those things are continuing to grow. Demand grows, which means they need these raw materials. Yeah, and how wide of a range do you think there is here? I mean, you talk about a lot of different things where the rare earth, you know, metals and materials can really be useful. So just how wide of a range are you hoping to, you know, reach in terms of what you do? The range is is extraordinary and it's ubiquitous in our day-to-day environment. So if think about almost anything that moves or vibrates in your life relative to, and when I say vibrate, I'm talking about your phone, uh, as I hold up my phone, um, you know, the tiny version of that is uh, what actually makes your phone vibrate is a little tiny motor inside that has a rare earth permanent magnet in it and an offset weight. And as that thing spins around, that's what, uh, makes the phone vibrate. Um, but at a larger scale, think, you know, defense industry technologies, uh, when you're talking about a, a defense platform, uh, anything that uh, flies through the air and goes boom or carries things that ultimately go boom, there are electric motors involved, uh, you know, either flight controls on a cruise missile, flight controls on a F-35 strike fighter, um, you know, uh, the controls and, and mechanisms of a, uh, a Virginia class attack submarine, uh, you know, you name it, uh, the defense industry, if it, if there's movement involved, uh, then there's probably a rare earth permanent magnet motor activating that movement. So it's incredibly important to the defense industry supply chain. But the, the big consumers are the renewable energy and reduced carbon future. Uh, so as you think about motors for electric cars and then offshore wind turbines. So the, there's a, a lot of breadth. And then you have these really big consumers that are growing just almost exponentially uh, going forward. So. As I look at your website, I see that you have three projects, Wyoming, Nevada, and then Arizona. Yep. Is that what you're drilling for, the rare earth uh, magnet? Is that what you're looking for? Well, no, you have to, you have to manufacture a magnet. So, and, and this is where the supply chain is, it gets complex and is, uh, you know, has several steps that have to be stood up uh, onshore in North America. So, um, you know, 
we're drilling for rare earth uh, mineral or element bearing rock. Okay. And then that rock has to be crushed, pulverized and, and extraction processes to pull those rare earths out of that rock. And then we go through processes to uh, do separation, purification, and then metal making. And then once you have metal, now you can start talking about making those magnets, those high performance magnets. So those are actually multiple businesses we have to stand up to complete that supply chain and then feed into a, a magnet maker and a motor maker. For those components in the earth that you need to make that magnet, are there certain areas of the world where it's easier to retrieve than others, or is it kind of standardized across the globe? Actually, very little standardization. You know, the, the, the Chinese have the majority of the extraction market, mining market, you know, well over 60% of it. And you also have Myanmar, uh, some in Russia, um, you know, a bit in Vietnam. Uh, uh, Australia has some mining. There's one operating mine in the United States. It's in California, which is one of the the toughest places on the planet to actually develop and operate a mine due to, to restrictions there. We're really fortunate in that Arizona, Wyoming, Nevada, these are very mining friendly jurisdictions. They have the workforce, they have mining experience, they have mining capability. The, the industries are there to support the work that we're doing. Now, um, you know, getting it out of the ground while that's, that's challenging uh, from a permit perspective and, and getting you know, both uh, permits and social license to do so, um, you know, it's uh, the, the actual mining itself is not that difficult because it's uh, surface mining. You know, it's almost like a like a quarry as you're taking the rock out of the ground. It's from that point forward that, you know, you get into essentially a specialty chemical processing capability to move it on down the line and ultimately make metal. So you're not actually drilling into the earth. You're just scraping the earth. Is that correct? Well, in the phase we're in right now, which is exploration and then we'll move on to development work, there actually is drilling. So we, we you know, we drill and take, a, you know, think of it as a biopsy of the so earth, of sample. the rock. You're taking a core yeah, sample core. Out Yeah, that's right? exactly right. Yeah, so this is, uh, you know, core drilling, reverse circ drilling, um, you know, different, different drilling approaches to get different information out of that to understand how big is the deposit? How deep is it? How wide is it? You know, trying to get a, a three-dimensional image of something that's buried in the ground. And all we have is the top dimension, you know, you know, width and length on a map. You know, so we're trying to go from a two-dimensional understanding to a three-dimensional understanding by drilling. So for you to get that core sample that you need, is the depth that you have to drill to different in all three states? Or is it all about the same level? So far, it's been pretty similar because the. And how you know, far would, is that? Yeah, how so, far down so, is that? Yeah, so we would, you know, we describe these deposits as being uh, exposed at surface, open at surface. You know, there's rock exposed at surface that we can assess, and then we're trying to figure out how deep that goes. So, you know, you're talking anywhere from 100 to 500 feet deep, maybe 700 feet deep. But when you're talking about surface mining, quarry type mining, you know, you're not going to get much deeper than that, you know, a few, few hundred feet deep. Uh, and th that's where most of your business is done. And so in the uh, other countries that you named, uh, Japan, for example, that's 60%. Is it the same similar process there? Drill down 100, 600 feet to core and then yes. figure it out from there? 
Yeah, so actually it's primarily mainland communist China that has that 60% of extraction currently. More importantly, they control about 85, 90% of the midstream processing. And that's that's the choke point that makes the Department of Defense, the Pentagon nervous because, um, uh, you know, it's that processing piece that the Chinese really fully control. You know, if things got kinetic, with the Chinese on the, you know, in a, uh, you know, something war or warlike uh, proxy or direct, you know, they cut off that supply chain and, you know, 90 days later we start running out of cruise missiles. So, you know, that's a, that's a tough place to be. So there's a lot of motivation to onshore that supply chain and take away that choke point. Um, But, uh, you know, the Chinese certainly have a, a strong hold on that. They do a couple of approaches. One is a, you know, a, a surface approach like we're talking about, uh, and it's actually a, a part of a huge iron ore mine that secondarily takes rare earths out of that feed. But they also do uh, ionic clay mining, which is at surface, but it's a it's absolutely environmentally brutal how they go about it. It they they surface leach by pumping massive amounts of ammonium sulfate into the ground, and then as the as that ammonium sulfate bubbles back up, it's, it's bringing the rare earths with it in a leaching mechanism, which as you can imagine, pumping ammonium sulfate into the ground destroys the vegetation, you know, near and far and has massive impacts on the water table. So the environmental impacts on that in China have been really extraordinary. Another reason why we're keen to onshore the supply chain is because, you know, U.S. mining is the most environmentally responsible mining approach in the world. You know, we have the protections, we have the capabilities, we have the technology to be able to do, to mine responsibly and and much more cleanly without the impacts that the Chinese have done for the last 50 years in this space. Marty, I would ask just as far as your goals and, and what you want to do with the business moving forward and kind of your short-term goals and, and what you're hoping to achieve, where do you start when it comes to figuring out what makes the most sense. Yeah. So, you know, to be clear, we, we are not a mining company at this point. We are a mineral exploration company. So we, we put little holes in the ground, not big holes in the ground in terms of how we uh, function as an operator. So, you know, we will continue on that path of mineral exploration, developing uh, and expanding our, our data set on the projects we have uh, as we do that, we're able to de-risk those projects and work on planning, permitting, uh, advancing the social license in the community, um, you know, getting those projects more to shovel ready and, and de-risking them. And then down the road, there'll be a decision to make on, on any of these projects of, of, you know, is it, is it, you know, technically and economically viable and, and can we get the social option, uh, social license and permits to operate? And if so, you know, either we move forward and become a, a mining company or we transition to allowing some other, you know, mining operator to take that on. And, and we continue to function as a mineral exploration company now looking for more of these deposits. And we're looking for really unique deposits. Normally, rare earth deposits, those that are known today, they're known because they were found on a radioactive signature, you know, uranium, thorium, uh, uranium and thorium being co-deposited, you could find those by looking for radiation emitting from the ground, and there would be rare earths co-deposited in that same place. 
Um, well, that's a problem. You start digging those out of the ground, you're making a lot of radioactive waste. We've really focused on uh, uh, projects that are that are a little more difficult to find, takes, takes a, a more uh, nuanced geographic or ge- uh, geological discovery approach in finding those that are not radioactive because those we believe have a, a smoother path to permitting and can actually get operational in a U.S. environment. Well, that's terrific. Marty, you know, when I ran into you last month at the Commodity Trade Week conference here in Houston, and, and I know you'd had, you had something to talk about with regards to in, something of interest to our listeners that we just never have on. So when I got back home, I looked up your website, and you had something on there that was very intriguing to me. You wrote, you had a quote from the Forbes, uh, the, something Forbes put out in 2021, and you put this, this quote on. U.S. needs 10 times the amount of rare earth metals it currently has to meet President Biden's ambitious 2030 EV goals. It needs 20 to 25 times more to meet the needs of the green economy and the military to the year 2050. Well, after what you just told me, we're going to be hard pressed to, to meet these goals and they're pretty lofty, aren't they? They are lofty goals. And I would say realize that the U.S., while it's a huge market relative to those exact things you're talking about, Globally, when you look at, you know, EV production and, and uh, uptake in Europe and in Asia, you realize, you know, wow, th- those seem like robust goals here. But, you know, holy cow, man, the, the, how, the number of electric vehicles being built and purchased in Asia and Europe, uh, you realize that's not as ambitious a goal as you as we might think as Americans, because the rest of the planet is going in that direction as well. And, you know, combined, that's a much larger market that creates much larger market demand. So when you have that much demand happening in real time now and accelerating forward in the future uh, and you have a constrained supply, you know, there's opportunity there. No, that's that's great. It makes perfect sense. That's about all I have. Greg, do you think of anything else? Or Marty, is there any topic you want to cover that we didn't bring up? So, you know, as I see, uh, you know, when we think about, you know, why why this? Why why should people be interested in this? It's really interesting in that from a government perspective, this is one of the rare spaces that has bipartisan and bicameral engagement uh, politically. On the right side of the political aisle, the anti-China, you know, patriotic movement, you know, is really keen to onshore uh, these jobs, onshore the supply chain and de-risk our uh, defense industry supply chain. Uh, very important there. On the left side of the political aisle, it's all about the reduced carbon new energy future. You know, if you want electric vehicles, if you want renewable energy, you want wind energy, you have to have these things. If you want to electrify mobility, transportation, you have to have rare earths and the downstream magnets made from them. So uh, it is critical to the outcome goals uh, that are of really high value to both sides of the political aisle. Uh, and then, you know, market wise, these things are already moving in that direction, you know, electric vehicles and offshore wind. And, you know, I learned a long time ago that if you, you know, when you're looking for business opportunity or even investment opportunity, you know, a mindset I have is, you know, find something you like, you know, if you, if you love Tesla, if you love, uh, you know, lucid cars or you love general electric, you know, those are, those are great places to look 
for investment opportunity. But one way you hedge and, and somewhat double down on the opportunity is to look for their, their shared supply chain constraints and how can you find opportunity in that, both in terms of a business to build uh, as well as investment opportunities. Well, Marty, we really appreciate your time today and certainly wish you nothing but the best moving forward and uh, hope you're able to enjoy your, your summer as well there. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, we enjoy our summer here in Arizona by uh, uh, fondly looking forward to October. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not that much different here in Houston. Thanks a lot for the time. Absolutely. Thank you. There's Marty Weems on episode 134 of the Green Insider powered by eRenewable. Make sure to tune in and listen and download and give us a five-star rating wherever you may get your podcast. Because as the saying goes, you learn something new every day and we were responsible for today's lesson. Mike, a lot of fun. Looking forward to reconnecting over the next episode. Yes, sir. You did. Everybody did a great job today on the show. Marty, thank you for your time. And uh, we appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you at the next conference. All right. He's Mike Niemer. I'm Greg Frank. That'll do it for episode 134, powered by eRenewable, the Green Insider podcast. Everyone enjoy the rest of your day.